0: Thanks everybody for coming. Um, This is uh, the panel on critical perspectives on the law from the 19th to 21st centuries. Can people hear me? Okay, good. It's a small place, so that's good. Um, So it'll probably be a little more informal maybe than some of the bigger panels. Um, Everyone here today is gonna be talking about law and capitalism, but what law means in each of those contexts is pretty different, and the contexts themselves are pretty different, which I think is um, gonna, those different perspectives are pretty productive for engaging these questions more broadly, at least that's my hope. Um, so uh, our our other panelists here um, I guess I will let them introduce themselves but I'm David Kybe I am the uh, co-organizer of DC Jacobin Reading Group and the co- organizer of the DC Metro Metro DC DSA's uh, Socialist Night School Hi everyone I'm Rob Hunter I use he him pronouns Uh, I'm a member of the editorial collective at legal form which is a blog that focuses on Marxist inquiry into law and legal theory Uh, and I've researched and writing interests in constitutional law, constitutional theory, uh, democratic theory.
1: Hi, uh, my name is Camila Vergara. I am a PhD candidate in political science at uh, Columbia University, and I work on constitutional law, uh, legal theory, and plebeian politics.
2: Um, My name is Sam menifee I've spent the last 12 years or so as a community organizer, um, and I will be starting my Ph.D. in the Anthropology Department at American University this fall, um, and I'll be talking about criminal courts.
1: Thank you. Um, So... I started researching uh, Lenin, um, the pre-revolutionary Lenin, if there is a pre-revolutionary Lenin. And of course, he was a lawyer as well. And he uh, exercised law. So he knew uh, very much about the uh, theory of the law and also the practice of the law. So uh, there were two, he writes in Siberia while well, he was exiled, uh, two uh, pamphlets. On One on the law fines, which was in uh, 1886 and the Law on Schedules and Overtime and Holidays, uh, which was uh, written in 1897. And uh, he, first of all, the, 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 the first insight that he uh, puts forward is that the origin of the law is always political action. So he traces the, these two laws to two uh, workers' revolts in mills, one in, um, in one of the provinces in, in, in Russia, the other were in, in St. Petersburg. And there were so, um, uh, so violent these uh, uh, revolts that the state had to step in. And therefore, was, uh, Lenin says, was forced to give concessions. However, Lenin says that uh, the problem is that because the law is crafted by the elites, it is very difficult to actually um, see it as. Um, protecting the workers. And he says that is the impossibility of having a proletariat law within the uh, the structure of production that predominates in Russia at that moment. But I would like to make the argument that the, the and, and I'm saying that uh, Pashukhanis also talks about in 1929, that proletariat law is just an oxymoron. It cannot be done as it is conceived, as the law as it is conceived within our system. Um, so um, Lenin first says that basically law, any labor law, which is the most proletariat law of all law, supposedly, um, is the origin is called class struggle, and the interpretation of the law is also based on class struggle. We cannot just, the interpretation is always part of uh, uh, the the, the struggle between the employers and the workers, but also the enforcement. And he says, therefore, in order to have any law that works semi-well, you need to have the uh, pressure of the workers in the interpretation of the law and the enforcement of the law. If not, the law is just a paper and it's just useless. And he says it's a very common uh, practice. Um, uh, And he says basically that the law cannot be proletariat because the law cannot be emancipatory of the working class. It only regulates exploitation. And this regulation of exploitation is never based on the demands of the workers, but on the demands of capital and production. It's always crafted in order to uh, allow the worker to um, uh, uh, contribute to the production uh, cycle. Um, And therefore, the law is a way of legally subordinating the workers. That doesn't mean that before they were not subordinated, but the subordination was social, was material only. And when the state steps in and starts regulating, what it does, it gives another form of subordination to the uh, employers, to support, another form of subordinating the employer to, uh, the emplo- uh, to the employees to the employer. Sorry. So it's a legal subordination that is on top of the material uh, uh, subordination, and therefore it is different. Um, this gives, uh, and Lenin says, before they had arbitrary power because it is only about force. I just force you, and you do. But the law allows it to uh, allows the employer to have arbitrary power on the worker through the law. So it is a legalized arbitrary power. So it's given. It's a, a kind of an extension of the power of the state given to the employer, uh, and uh, he proves this by the by uh, this analysis of fines and overtime. Um, Basically, he says fines, that is uh, one of the first laws um, in Russia was um, abolishing uh, nighttime work for uh, children and women, and then a child labor law, and then there were the fine laws, you know, the laws on fines. And there were three grounds for fining workers. One was defective work, giving something that was defective, and therefore the employer would lose money, so therefore they would charge something. Then is absenteeism. Which is uh, the the that you don't go to work, or you go late to work, or you you know to take a, a too long of a break. So therefore, in order, not your your pay is not withheld, but actually you have to pay a fine. And the other is the maintenance of order, which is kind of the disciplinary um, rules within the, the factory. And today we have like uh, dress codes, you know, hair codes, all types of d- discipline within the industry. Um, And uh, how this legal subordination takes place, uh, argues uh, Lenin, one is the loopholes that the law... Almost uh, explicitly gives to employers. So the idea that you can uh, actually um, uh, tap onto some of the clauses in order to bypass the whole law. So, for example, you can, you do not need the three grounds for finding workers because you have a clause that basically allows you to uh, exert any type of discipline if the industry requires it. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, if the industry is in need for the worker to work more, to you know uh, to not have breaks, to work twelve hours a day, then you would need. You would be forced to it only because of the necessity of the industry. So even the, this very limited grounds of you know for for, for uh, fines are completely you know uh, disregarded uh, by uh, because they don't want to kind of constrain the employer. Because at the end is remember that Russia at this point they want uh, industrial production. So they want to be uh, 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 they, they want to step up in the in the international game. So therefore production is the goal. So uh, the worker needs to be subordinated in order to uh, have this role in the, in the production system. And then also you have the material subordination of the worker. Because it is the, even if the law is good and can actually regulate and can constrain the employer, it is the lack of enforcement that allows the employer to just bypass the law. And this is kind of a, a problem with, he says, the inspectors of the, fa- of the, of the factories. There, first of all, they are very few. And then, because they're very few, they're very bribeable, right? <laughs> the, the, the employer can bribe them, and the, and, the, and the worker has no time for going to the to the inspector to say, hey, I've been fined wrongly, for example. And they have uh, no, no, no money to uh, hire a lawyer, and they have no money to bribe the inspector. So therefore, in the actual material enforcement on the ground, even if the law is great, it's, it's, uh, it, it allows for the material subordination of the, of the, of the worker, uh, nevertheless. And then the, the second part of how this material enforcement takes place is through the lack of mechanisms for redress. So of course, we know that any worker, anyone, anybody that has been wrong could go to the courts. But this is an individual appeal. And therefore, you are at the mercy of the judge, or the inspector, or whoever, right? Uh, so in, this says, if the law does not contain Mechanisms for the worker to force the inspector to inspect, or to force the employer to uh, to pay or repay fines that were wrongly imposed. Therefore, the worker is completely powerless, and this is the reality. And even though we can always go to the courts, this is not a real, a viable uh, a vehicle for redress. And therefore, uh, it is there is a legal subordination and a material subordination allowed for, by the law. And, of course, when I was, uh, you know, reading about the fines, I said, this is very draconian, kind of like old, why are we even worried about this? This is the 1895, basically. This is just so long ago. And it is not long ago, because those fines are actually in full force today. And also overtime is in full time, because overtime, the other law was that you, they restricted the hours of working for for 11 and a half hours a day. This was the law. Uh, And, but they say, well... But, even, but then even though they put a clause saying, well, if the industry needs it, the employer can compel you, force you to uh, work more than 11 and a half hours, even 14 or 20 if the law, if, if the industry allows it, right, needs it, um, and um, and in a way it matters for production. Uh, so And these two features, fines for absenteeism, for bad work, are still in force, and uh, the um, um, the lack of redress is also in force and overtime is, is in also in full force. Uh, and one interesting feature that I, maybe we can talk in Q&A is that Lenin says that the elites, what the argument that they use in order to impose overtime was the right to work. How are we going to restrict the right of the worker to work all the hours that she wants? We need to just give them the right, it will be against the freedom of the worker. So this is very interesting because it's very similar to the right-to-work right uh, laws here uh, because, in, a, in a, way it is a, a way, we don't want any restrictions, no unions, no, no regulations, because we just want to, the right to work wherever and however we want, right? It's the individual autonomous that needs to you know, uh, have that, uh, that power. Um, and then it said, well, these are uh, features that are endured not only in the liberal system but also in the Soviet system. So what happened next? So Lenin comes to power. He forgets everything that he wrote, pre-revolutionary, right before going into power. And in 1922, he passes the labor code, which actually uh, changes the fines. It's not a money fine, but it's actually uh, they, uh, they, they, they threaten the, the worker with firing the worker. So you could only be absent for three days or six days a month without you know, a justification. Five years later, there's only three days a month. Then five years later, it's only one day a month. And then it is criminalized. So in 1951, they passed another regulation saying, if you are absent from work, you actually could go to jail. And also they force uh, a- eviction from housing because housing is owned by the state, the state owns the production. So everything is owned by the state so they can actually oppress the workers so much in terms of like the, the the whole kind of like tentacles of power. So at the end, in the Soviet era, the workers were completely subjected to labor because production was again out on the forefront of the state. So you needed the workers, so you need this compelled compulsory labor. And today, of course, we don't have compulsory labor. What we have is necessity. People need to work, people need work three jobs to make a living. So it is forced anyway, right? And uh, of course, uh, Lenin makes um, uh, some reference to T.H. Green, uh, freedom of contract, all the the idea of uh, the the ideology of liberalism, that contracts are agreements among equals, and therefore we need to be free to contract in whatever manner we want, right? And T.H. Green says no, because at the end, laws are there to uh, help the weak against the the dominant class, and therefore laws are there, supposedly, and the normative aspect of law is to restrict domination to avoid domination Um, but today in the US and many parts in the world whatever is contracted whatever is within the contract agreed among the parts it's legitimate only it could be uh, appealed if it is like there's some anti discriminatory rules inside about race religion national origin or if you have a discrimination against disabilities or if you're an anti-union you cannot you know have anti-union rules but that's it everything else goes OK, uh, so there's no possibility of exit, not even in the Soviet era and not even today, because you cannot not work like if you're working class for a living. So therefore, you're forced to work, you're compelled you're to work. Um, so today uh, I'm going to bring a couple of examples of how this uh, law, these enduring features of uh, labor law. Today are the same. These are the first labor laws in, in Russia, and they're basically the same today. So um, there are a, a couple of companies that actually um, uh, charge fines for absenteeism. So uh, one of the one of the, I don't know if you know this uh, app Handy is for cleaning services. So basically, if you're a cleaner, you go to this you know platform and you sign a contract with Handy, which is this company, and then they hook you up with you know uh, people that want their apartment clean, right? Uh, but they have a long list of fines, so if they are um, uh, late for work, they are charged $15, which is one hour of minimum wage. If you don't show up for your appointment or you, are, you, don't, you, you don't have an excuse before four hours of the, of the uh, appointment, you have to pay $50 for, in addition to it. So it's not that it gets away from your paycheck. This basically you need to work for free for three hours, more than three hours, in order to repay your employer. All these fees are inside, right? Uh, this is one, uh, and there's no mechanisms for redress. So the, the terms of employment that I actually went into says they're actually class action. Remember, class action is not an action anymore. You cannot band together with the other cleaners that actually there are 100 cleaners a week coming into this app. So th- you could have a huge class action uh, demand uh, appeal, and, but it's not possible, it's denied within the, 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 um, the, the contract. And what is the solution for Lenin for all this? How can, what can we do he says we need to elect the workers need to elect deputies in order to oversee that these fines or whatever rules are being followed right and actually to push back against domination and of course this is uh, uh, it was not unions were very uh, were not very uh, strong at the moment in russia but today we are in a way back to the uh, to the to the union movement here however we know that unions tend to be part of the problem sometimes because unions are tamers of the workers, and in many other, in many in many, in many of the of the walkouts that have happened in in teachers and, and uh, in the, the student worker movement, unions have been part of the of the of, of the limits for the movement to actually ask for something that is a demand and not actually legalizing what we have. Because what the workers want is like, don't oppress me anymore. But when you are in, empowered, you want actually better conditions. You want to fight against oppression. And this, the union says, this cannot be done. You need to conform. We need to just have a contract, and that is good for you. And, and, and that this, we cannot do it. The lack of imagination is part of the representation and this kind of class of uh, uh, union leaders that come out of this um, this pushback against the capitalist state. But in a way, what I want to show here is that Part of what Lenin's uh, insight is that if law is, um, is not enforced correctly and there's no mechanisms for the workers to be there to enforce it, you it's not only the state, because the state is an oligarchic state. So the state is not from the part of the workers, but actually for, uh, from the employers. So you need kind of a representative of workers overseeing that the laws are, are done. And uh, you need to be careful of the loopholes and the ambiguities. I'm going to give one example. So I am a student worker at Columbia. And uh, Colombia doesn't doesn't uh, they don't um, we are not under kind of employment um, contractual agreement even if we even if we are uh, because Colombia doesn't understand us as workers. So in order for Colombia not to give us all the benefits that workers and protections that workers deserve, they um, uh, rename our working student workers as. Um, instructors or trainers trainees right so therefore they just change the word and they were well, therefore we're not workers so therefore the labor law doesn't apply to us so therefore part of the struggle is to reclaim the worker as a concept for us in order to be just recognized by capital right just just that and this is part of the struggle and it's very disheartening at this, uh, this point thank you
0: Okay, next up we have Rob Hunter. All right, thank you. Uh, thank you, Camila, that was that was excellent. Uh, so I'm gonna be speaking about uh, the critical legal studies movement in the United States and uh, its limits. Uh, so the elaboration of Marxian critique of political economy necessarily involves critical inquiry into the law. Legal relations are co-constitutive with other social relations, such as wage labor, property, and the commodity form. For those who are interested in critically apprehending the current moment and the terms that are set out in Marx's critique, there's no avoiding the fact that law is one of the moments in the social totality that we commonly call capitalism. One of the most important attempts at mounting a systematic critique of law and capitalism, however, was not at all Marxist. In the late 1970s through the mid 1980s, influential members of the first wave of the Critical Legal Studies Movement, or CLS, um, or the Crits, uh, as they were originally called by their detractors, but happily adopted as their own moniker, Uh, The Crits articulated a critique of law's role in the reproduction of hierarchy in liberal capitalist societies. Many of the most prominent Crits had lofty ambitions to mount a thoroughgoing critique of law per se. They failed, as even many Crits would attest by the mid-1990s, the moment when Duncan Kennedy, arguably the leading Crit, pronounced the movement dead. I contend that they failed because they lacked an adequate theory of capital. They did themselves no favors by rejecting Marx, Marxism, and Marxian critique all under the sign of left-liberal, anti-Marxist politics. So what were the crits all about? Uh, very briefly, their critique started from three uh, major commitments. First, that law is constitutive of individual consciousness. Second, that legal actors are constructors, whether witting or not, of social hierarchies, and that law reproduces social hierarchies. And third, that legal rules, discourses, and institutions are not instantiations of timeless principles, but are instead the outcomes of contingency and conflict. These commitments, when brought into contact with courts, the legal profession, and legal education, yielded several core claims. The first is legal indeterminacy. In many, if not most cases, the available legal materials do not exhaust the possibilities for the outcome of the case. In other words, legal rules do not determine the decisions that judges make. Uh, it was here that the Crits' claims to being heirs to the legal realists of the early 20th century in the U.S. was at its strongest. Uh, for the Crits, a, a further aspect of this conclusion was that uh, law as a whole is internally contradictory. Uh, the content of one area of the law may be at odds or cross-purposes with the content in another area of the law. Uh, a favored contradiction for the Crits uh, was the tension between the common law's preference for narrow rules and the common law's preference for broad standards. Uh, This is a contradiction that Duncan Kennedy very expertly mapped out. A Second major conclusion uh, was that law is a form of politics. Uh, And um, although I'm sure the Crits would have denied it up and down, uh, one can see some continuities here um, with Lenin's insight about the origins of positive law. The Crits denied that there is such a thing as legal reasoning, as a distinctive form of reasoning for them law is not a separate domain of social rationality uh, it is conditioned by and subject to power relations law and politics are interpenetrated for the crits and they serve in distinct ways to construct hierarchy finally for the crits um, they attack the liberal conception of juridical persons who are privileged abstractions uh, as rational subjects uh, whereas uh, For the Crits, individuals are embedded in history, they are embedded in communities, uh, and they're not the free monads imagined by classical liberal thought. Okay, so uh, I think uh, many of these claims will, on their face, resonate with many Marxists, with with many people on the left. Uh, I contend that they do not add up to a thoroughgoing critique of law. The Crits rarely ventured into critiques of the broader social totality within which law is one of many mediating moments. Instead, the critical legal studies movement was marked by a shared suspicion of attempts to apprehend social totality. It was an essentially left liberal project, rather than an imminent critique of liberal society. It halted before the horizons of liberalism, and although it saw liberal thought as riven with contradictions, the Crits denied that any unity could supervene upon those contradictions. For the Crits, it's not just contradiction all the way down, but all the way up. At the level of the social, no unity in separation is possible. Such a view is necessarily in tension with the Marxian insight that the imperative to valorize capital continually subsumes society in however a contested or contingent manner. Numerous crits rejected Marxian frames explicitly. Duncan Kennedy, for example, refused to endorse the proposition that law is logically related to, quote, any aspect of the social totality, end quote. For him, quote, the outcomes within the law have no inherent logic, end quote. And a theory detecting such a logic imposes systematicity where there is none, according to Kennedy. Uh, for Kennedy, as well as other uh, notable crits in the first wave, Marx's social explanations superimposed rigid conceptual structures that are vitiated by the lived experience of individuals embedded in particular contexts. The danger that the crits saw in Marxism was that it denied the ineluctable centrality of consciousness, which for them was the a locus of normative concern and the font of social contingency. It is true that some crits did deploy etiolated conceptions of Marxist thought. They press ganged thinkers like Lukács and Gramsci into service as pseudo-liberal chroniclers of the plurality of competing interests and blocs in liberal society. Others conflated Marxism with social philosophy conducted in a sort of existential register, decrying all legal relations as alienating us from our real, unmediated selves. Uh, I do want to acknowledge, though, that a very few crits did have close connections to the actually existing Marxisms of their time. Uh, the best example is probably Carl Clare, whose studies of jurisprudence and judicial decision making foregrounded the concept of social reproduction and presented arguments that may have been drawn uh, from Italian operaismo uh, or autonomism. I'm not sure, and if anybody has any leads, please tell me, I'm dying to know. Crits, like Clare, however, were exceptional, uh, especially in the first wave, which disavowed Marxism, even as it sought to distinguish itself as an avowedly left-wing camp. So the Crits, uh, as I see it, um, recapitulated a number of sort of classical misapprehensions about the Marxian critique. The first is economism. As the Crits saw it, Marxism set itself a task of producing a radical political economics that it had been unable to complete to anyone's satisfaction. Not only this, but Marxism limited its analytic purchase on the social world by framing everything in terms of so-called economic relationships. Central to this reading is the notion that Marxist social inquiry is undertaken for the sake of producing hypotheses about economics, rather than critiques of the very categories and concepts that populate liberal social thought. Uh, Another misapprehension was determinism. For the Crits, Marxism was a theory of how economic relations determine all other social relations, in particular juridical relations this was held to be unacceptable on the grounds that it denies the potency and unpredictability of consciousness however as i see it, this gets the relationality all wrong the relations within a social totality are mutually constitutive they presuppose one another the crit's reading of marx such that economic relations cause other social relations is no more sophisticated than a superficial reading of marx as a base superstructure theorist finally Uh, Another major misapprehension of the Crits um, was that they read a sort of neo-Ricardian value theory into Marx. Many Crits read Marx as arguing that value is physically, almost, uh, embodied in commodities at the moment of production. When, in fact, commodities are only socially validated through exchange. Uh, In other words, under generalized commodity production, value is realized through the conjuncture of production and exchange now it's beyond my scope here to offer uh any kind of historiographically adequate accounts of the divergence of the problem situations in analytic frameworks of marxisms on the one hand and critical legal studies on the other uh, but i do want to focus on the contrasting postures and dispositions of the crits on the one hand and on the other hand a particular strand of marxist theorizing about law and state gesundheit as i see it a rough, ragged, and frequently discontinuous dialectic may be traced from the Frankfurt School through the new reading of Marx uh, to open Marxism and other related currents in recent Marxist theoretical production. Uh, it was in this series of debates that two propositions were put forward, critiqued, and refined. Namely, that law is mutually constitutive of generalized commodity production, and that the state is, one of, is the political form of capital. Central to this bundle of tendencies, which had varying levels of affinity for one another, was the understanding of the Marxist research project not as a prescription for radical social science, but as a critique of political economy undertaken for the sake of a critical theory of society in general. If we take this approach, we can see that it simply isn't the case that the realm of the economic structures the social in any form of uniform or unidirectional fashion. They must be understood as constituting one another continuously and yet continuously subject to contestation and contingency as well. This should be clear from the attention that Marx himself paid to the juridical dimension of the commodity form, or the focus of Chapter 10 of Volume 1 of Capital on the legal elaboration of the maximum hour working day. It is simply not possible to charitably read this as a crudely based superstructural view of the determination of legal forms by economic phenomena. Uh, Capitalism, for Marx, is not simply a battery of production techniques. Uh, It is what uh, Tony Smith has called the dissociated sociality, in which all social relations are subsumed, however contingently, under the valorization imperative, under the the imperative to to accumulate ever more capital. Consequently, although so-called economic relations do have capillary ramifications throughout society, the reverse is also true. Moreover, the most significant ramifications, excuse me, ramifications are not primordially economic. The structuration and demarcation of economic relations are necessarily political and legal processes. In dismissing Marxian critique as a species of economism, the critics deprived themselves of an adequate theory of capital, and they made a number of elementary errors. By failing to apprehend capitalist society, not merely as a society that happens to have capitalist production, but indeed as a society organized around, through, and for value accumulation, The Crits persuaded themselves that Marxists had nothing to say and could say nothing about social hierarchies that are not articulated in terms of unequal accumulations of value. The absence of a theory of capital also meant that the Crits conflated determination with determinism in their reading of Marx. They imagined that the determination of content by form could only ever be unidirectional and complete, and therefore, absurd. But the presence of contradiction, contingency, and ambiguity in capitalist societies does not negate the proposition that social forms determine the content of social relations. Rather, such contingency and conflict demonstrate the lability and radical, yet bounded indeterminacy of the content of political and legal relations. Finally, because they lacked an adequate theory of capital, the Crits, uh, especially Kennedy, um, read what Diane Elson called Marx's value theory of labor as a labor theory of value. They implicitly, excuse me, the Crits implicitly naturalized the assumptions of neoclassical political economy even though they expended no little effort in arguing for the contingent and historically specific character of the precepts of political economy, especially in the 19th century, uh, as neoclassical economics um, emerged alongside a laissez-faire jurisprudence. As such, the Crits could only criticize liberal capitalism for failing to live up to its own justificatory pretensions. They could not critique it as a contradictory and totalizing system of social domination. So why then should we pay CLS any special attention? The first reason is simply that it happened. It is the major critique of law that is on offer in American legal discourse, and it's the only one that is likely to have been heard of by even a minority of American lawyers. That critique may appear superficially compatible with Marxian critiques of law, even though it was in the main an anti-Marxist body of thought and not an adequate critical frame. Moreover, the legacy of critical legal studies helps to constitute the specific social matrix in which critical inquiry into law and legality are conducted. If you go to law school in the United States, the only critique of law as such that you are likely to encounter at all will be in the terms of CLS. The history of CLS is sedimented into American legal education. It may be more abundant, but important offshoots continue to thrive, such as critical legal history, critical feminist theory, and critical race theory. All of these have continued to ramify down to the present day, and continue to inform scholarly inquiry into the legal production of difference and domination. And This brings us to a second reason to seriously engage with the Crits, which was that they were understood by themselves and their antagonists for having accomplished at least one important task, which was to have dispatched with Marxism as a serious theoretical framework for inquiring into law. The major players in the first wave of CLS understood themselves to be breaking out of an allegedly doomed dialectic between liberalism and Marxism. So critical legal studies was Janus-based. On the right flank, the Crits sought to shock the bourgeois among their colleagues and co-disciplinarians, but they also carefully guarded their left flank. Most Crits were either hostile to or unsatisfied with Marxist conceptions of law and state. And it shows. Uh, The CLS critique of law was predicated on inadequate readings of Marxian thought and impoverished conceptions of the critique of political economy. Finally, lest I be accused of being too hard on the Crits, I do think that their critique was perhaps um, the only one or perhaps the most viable one that could be made within the Anglophone legal academy during the years of neoliberal restructuring and the extended denouement of the Cold War. Moreover, the first waivers, uh, especially the more historically inclined among them, did produce valuable work in terms of studying cases, legislation, and doctrine. And these studies must, by necessity, become the interlocutory foundation for the articulation of an extended Marxian critique of law. Also, and this is not a trivial point, the actual historical experience of the critics is instructive. In seeking to articulate a left-liberal critique of legal education, jurisprudence, and lawyerly culture, The Crits elicited a firestorm of furious denunciations from conservative and centrist colleagues, as well as the censure and opprobrium of journalists and public commentators. Marxists of all stripes are themselves no strangers to artless, bad faith objections. Uh, And for this, at least, the Crits deserve at least some of our sympathy. But more than that, their legacy and commitments, however contradictory, can be embraced, rejuvenated, and transformed through renewed Marxist attention to the state and the law constitutive elements of capitalism that cannot and should not be ignored or dismissed as having merely secondary importance to the project of Marxist theory. Thank you.
2: Awesome, thank you. Um, So the title of my paper is uh, Criminal Courts as a Site of Struggle, Notes Towards a Foucauldian Investigation of Contested Criminalization. Uh, This is a condensed excerpt from a work in progress summarizing the theoretical framework for an in-the-works ethnography of non-lawyers organizing resistance in criminal courts. I love critical feedback and I'm happy to expand on or offer sources for any of the points during Q&A. There's increased public recognition and intensification of uh, political discourse about the crisis of mass incarceration and spreading skepticism of the carceral perspective. Ideas like prison abolition are becoming intelligible to mainstream audiences, making it onto the likes of corporate outlets like MSNBC, and extrajudicial murders carried out by police and racist vigilantes have become the focus of old guard media outlets like the Washington Post. But despite increased scrutiny, urgency, and recognition of the horrifying inhumanities of quotidian realities of policing and prisons, we have yet to see increased recognition of the oppressive political operations of criminal courts. Criminal courts are just as dehumanizing and brutal as policing and prisons, but are shielded from popular understanding by banality, obfuscation, and their constant insistence on their own legitimacy. Reform efforts for all branches of the carceral state, including courts, have been urgently and repeatedly proclaimed for as long as there have been prisons. The current conjuncture requires to move beyond the eternal treadmill of reform and popularize and propagate explicitly political understandings and radical strategies to fight this oppression in creative ways. Despite widespread alarm and substantial attention to and study of the pathologies of the carceral state, the crisis persists without alleviation in sight. There are numerous studies detailing the political dynamics of policy formation and institutional reform that leave little hope for input from communities most affected or solutions that actually result in lower prison populations. Not only does popular discourse posit no light at the end of the proverbial tunnel, but much of it is marked by a sort of fatalism, overwhelmed by the totality of the carceral state and at a loss about where to go from here. Though there seems to be growing commitment to denouncing police and prisons, courts have yet, as as of yet escaped the same level of scrutiny and opprobrium. This is less true of many radicals who are daily continuing the the tireless work they've been doing for decades and achieving many small but significant successes in and around criminal courts. Um, Again, I'm focusing on non-lawyers here, so while the efforts of organizations like the National Lawyers Guild are incredible and very important for the foundation here and must be collaborated with, that's not the focus of my inquiry. Families organize support groups that become sites of consciousness raising and political organizing. Activists organize court watch programs, bail funds, and community defense workshops to spread methods for reducing harm from contact with police and courts. Anarchists provide material and emotional support to people leaving lockup with initiatives like coffee, not cops. Incarcerated people teach themselves and others the the technical ins and outs of legal procedure in order to become full participants in their own defense. Grand jury resistance continues despite the high cost shout out to Chelsea Manning, Uh, legal collectives and anti-repression committees make notable uh, interventions in ongoing legal cases. Though I had been participating in movement work around policing and prisons and reading about prison abolitionism for over a decade, I was mostly unaware of this as a distinct mode of struggle until I was exposed to the practices and possibilities of these traditions firsthand while participating in the eventually successful struggle to support the J-20 defendants. The blanket felony cases of the several hundred demonstrators kettled and mass arrested during Trump's inauguration were derailed through a broad set of efforts informed by the traditions mentioned above. I believe left movements could benefit greatly, both practically and theoretically, from sustained engagement with this type of work. I also believe that this work could have a broader impact if made the subject of active critical reflection to synthesize more powerful action. In order to help us understand the efficacy, both potential and actual, of these marginalized strategies, I'd like to develop a practical political understanding of criminal courts in the context of a broader analysis of the carceral state. This is to identify and analyze particular practices that create and reproduce mass incarceration, helping us to think collectively and creatively about how to contest strategically vital processes and how to develop communities of resistance to engage in counter practices. One key component of this is a better understanding of criminal courts outside the strictures of legalism, which is the view that the practice of law is the fair and legitimate site of dispute resolution to supplement already robust, practical critiques of policing and prisons. The focus on quotidian processes is insightfully rationalized by Piven and Cloward and their classic poor people's movements. People experience deprivation and oppression within a concrete setting, not as the end product of large and abstract processes. And it is the concrete experience that molds their discontent into specific grievances against specific targets. The suffering created by courts occurs at the level of the particular interactions that constitute localized articulations and subject those caught up in courts to processes of classification, avowal, control, and sanction. Please don't mistake my technical language for uh, deracination. This is truly horrifying to behold. Legalism takes these processes for granted, naturalizing them while focusing on lawyerly interpretation of statutes, legal briefs, and judicial decisions as the medium of legal strategy and tactics. Approaching courts politically, rather than legalistically, means contesting the power relations and quotidian operations through collective, creative collective action, articulating alternative ways of being and new strategies of subversion and resistance that contest component processes of criminalization and cultivate different social relations in their place. The exercise of power to affect alternative outcomes in the dynamics of contestation or contention is the ineluctable core of politics, illuminating contingency and possibilities of change. It's important to recognize that conflict often can't be resolved through technical fixes or legal adjudication. There are core disputes of values, ethics, interests, and loyalties that can only be contingently and never permanently resolved through struggle. Two quick reminders to help us further foreground possibility and contingency. One is to focus on the kinds of social relations and subjects that are constituted, produced, and reproduced by criminal courts through carceral logics and their role in the broader carceral state. Crime and criminality are socially constructed concepts, contingent agglomerations of meanings, practices, relations, attitudes, and more that are invoked by ideas that have been joined together over time through particular political conflicts that have reified into seemingly objective categories. Crime and criminality are often discussed as if they have independent existence, as if they are naturally occurring phenomena with a preordained essence and permanent place in some sort of transcendental moral order. Criminals are often understood as a type of person, metaphysical entities that are fundamentally different than normal people or respectable citizens. However, it's important to understand criminality as something that is inscribed on a person, the result of many different concrete processes and practices individuals are subjected to. When a person is labeled criminal, there is an entire constellation of behaviors, relations, and sanctions that become associated with that person, putting them on a different social track, often separating that person from their community, and forever changing their lives. Understanding how these social relations are cultivated helps us pinpoint particular processes that we can struggle to resist, subvert, and supersede to fight for more humane and democratic social relations. The second related point is that it is not inevitable that we put people in cages. This is obvious, but the ubiquity and hegemonically axiomatic nature of caging means we have to struggle to maintain our focus on it. It is not natural that we have police with guns who perpetrate extrajudicial killings of civilians with irregularity and persistence that make them a defining feature of actually existing law enforcement. It is not right or just that ordinary people are subordinated in criminal courts and forced to attempt any influence they may wish to exert through lawyers or officials who may have no affinity, shared frameworks, or practical understandings of their lives. When these things are accepted as an inevitable function of law, as natural or just, that is a slap in the face of people who experience these as constitutive of systems of domination. One way to denaturalize the underlying processes at play is to focus less on mass incarceration itself as the primary object of inquiry and focus instead on the operations of part of a subset of state institutions often grouped together under the label carceral state, in this case criminal courts. Countering the daily grind of criminal courts is an urgent task. Every day, courts subjugate and immiserate hundreds of thousands of people across the United States. Drawing on theories of Piven and Cloward and E.E. Schatzneider to frame the practices of resistance, I argue that an important way to overcome the current impasse is to expand the scope of conflict and encourage the strategic withholding of quiescence or submission in the face of state repression. Though there are many lawyers and legal aid societies focused on pushing back against the carceral state, I stipulate that persistent strategic engagement by lay people has the potential to shift power relations in courts in a way that opens up more expansive possibilities than existing efforts at reform. My theoretical framework relies heavily on Michel Foucault's political theory, emphasizing the interconnectedness of, to quote Thomas Lemke, subjectivation and state formation and analyzing them from a single analytical perspective, focusing on rationalities and technologies of governing human beings. I also rely on anti-racist, queer, and anti-imperialist critiques of Foucault, as well as Bob Jessup's strategic relational approach, conceptualizing the state as social relation. A few relevant aspects of Foucault's theory of power that help animate this analysis include 1. Power is not something that one has, but one something does in relating to others. 2. Power is not only repressive, but is also productive of subjects, subjectivities, and discourses. Three, power is situated in a historico-political field, as articulated within a discursive, epistemic regime of power knowledge, roughly that power relations are historically specific, and constitutive antagonisms are particular to distinctive cultural formations. And four, power is deployed strategically by subjects using the tactical repertoires of localizations of political rationalities, with no necessary understanding of their implications or consequences. One more important thing to note here is that in a Foucaultian framework, the exercise of power, the successful execution of a strategy by one subject over or with another is never taken for granted. Every instance of power provides opportunities for collaboration, acquiescence, resistance, subversion, and reversal. The oft-quoted passage from History of Sexuality, where there is power, there is resistance, rarely is invoked to spotlight the full contingency and reversibility in power relations. Any power relation already assumes the capacity of the one acted upon to resist or act for themselves. In other words, the framework of pervasive power is not deterministic or totalizing, but rather highlights the contingent nature of all social relations and the ever-present possibilities for contestation. I'd also like to highlight four important characteristics of the carceral state to ground our understanding of criminal courts, each broadly supported by a variety of both academic and activist literatures. The first characteristic is that it is indeed a system of social control characterized by a deep carceral logic that has intensified in the neoliberal era, uh, variously called neoliberal penality, the new penology governing through crime by various activists and theorists. The second characteristic is that the carceral state is deeply tied to racism and white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, capitalism, and class domination, with many institutions and practices developing out of slavery, colonialism, repression of mass movements, disciplining unruly populations, and apartheid. The third aspect is that the carceral state has had notable and persistent effects on everything from citizenship, to schooling, to geography and the built environment, to social identity and beyond. It touches all aspects of our lives, having especially harsh effects on poor people and people of color in the United States. The fourth aspect of the carceral state is that it has always been publicly recognized as at best dysfunctional and more often characterized as in crisis, as long as the component institutions have existed. There exists just as pervasive a history of reforms, which have rarely led to anything other than more punishment and social control. In the words of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, not as steps away from brutality or inconsistency, but as attempts to make prisons produce social stability through applying some mix of care, indifference, compulsory training, and cruelty to people in cages. What's more, in the US, federalism and oligarchy render the scope of existing proposals of reform all but incapable of having the required impact on mass incarceration. While literature critical of the carceral state is robust, social relations in and around criminal courts receive far less scholarly attention than the social relations of policing and prisons. Most existing analyses focus on criminal law, criminal procedure, broader criminal justice policy or criminology, but don't spend much time focusing on the lived realities of actually existing courts. Courts have a particular privileged place in the carceral state where they're supposed to exercise checks on the other two branches, rein in excesses of law enforcement and penal revanchism, and determine the appropriate punishments through consistent application of clear statutes to readily provable facts. It has long been acknowledged by so-called legal realists and radicals alike that the realities of criminal courts bear little, if any, resemblance to these legitimating myths. Some basic themes and findings in the empirical literature on criminal courts are as follows. Civilians experience courts as confusing and intimidating, disempowering and coercive, alienating, capricious and destructive, as courts combine with policing to provide the vast majority of people with their most influential experiences of government and citizenship. We have a prosecutor-driven court system, ostensibly organized by logics of adversarial legalism that functions in a persistently racist and ultra revanchist punitive manner. It is insulated from oversight, complaint, sanction and reform. Around 95% of convictions result from plea bargains, which are themselves coercive and not subject to most due process mechanisms or review. Defendants are not treated as fully human or embedded social subjects and subjected to processes that treat criminal law as a strategic strategic process of subjection and incapacitation, rather than a reasoned process of fact-finding and application of appropriate sanction. Defense attorneys and judges are cornered by prosecutors' control over the process of criminal courts and frequently show signs of capture that lead them to approaching the system as managers rather than advocates. And reforms in the system have not historically uh, led to fewer people being incarcerated and mostly serve to make the system of social control more effective or efficient. As you can see, the rot is deep. The aim of my upcoming investigation is to document and theorize contemporary iterations of long and varied traditions of resistance to courts by activists and scholars both in and outside of prisons who have originated and prefigured many of the most trenchant critiques of the carceral state and develop multiple modes of resistance and subversion. These concrete strategies provide promising starting points for practical resistance to the dehumanization of criminal courts. This work is not widely recognized, and mostly described in scholarly literature as a peripheral component of movement histories, or in works on radical lawyers or particular legal organizations. Critical engagement with prison abolitionism will be especially important here. Even in the specific literature on abolitionism, most of which is activist and practical rather than uh, formal scholarship, courts receive far less attention than police and prisons. But much of the work that exists is sophisticated and insightful. Abolitionism um, is the belief that prisons have failed and and the advocacy of abolition of prisons as a long-term goal through excarceration strategies that move away from the notion of imprisonment as a response to lawbreaking and towards community-centered solutions to advance transformative justice. Abolitionist practice around criminal courts and criminal law has been substantially focused on supporting political prisoners fighting state repression of social movements and less well-documented practices of community outreach and solidarity. Abolitionist practice performs a function similar to the goal set out by E. E. Schatzneider in his preface to 1960s The Semi-Sovereign People, A realist View of Democracy in America. The concepts formulated here constitute an attack on all political theories, all research techniques and concepts tending to show that American politics is a meaningless stalemate about which no one can do anything. The carceral state is constituted by practices with varying levels of contingency that are open to contestation by practices and strategies already developing in communities of resistance. The practices that dominate and subjugate criminalized people in criminal courts are open to intervention and subversion by lay people in communities both outside the boundaries of criminal procedure and, this is very important, in collaboration with defense attorneys. One of the core insights of abolitionism is its rootedness in immediate practices in service of the long-term goal of a less punitive society if we want to contest processes of punishment and supplant them with social practices that bring about transformative justice, there are many ways of doing so right now.